This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the results, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app and you'll get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus rewards registration required. Points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly teaming up with Free for Mental Health Awareness Week this year. As football fans, we often pride ourselves on knowing everything, from which substitution can turn the game around to the quickest route home to beat the crowds. However, when it comes to discussing feelings with our friends, we might not always feel as confident. That's why we're here to equip you with the right tools so you can reach out to those who can help. If your mates are struggling, let them know that the Samaritans are free to call on 116123. That's 116123. They are there to listen without judgment or pressure, 24-7, 365 days of the year. Let's all take a moment to talk more than football. And welcome to the third and final edition of a series of special short episodes of the Known and Ever podcast, part of the Talk Sport Fan Network. This week, as Christmas approaches and more importantly, the return of club football, we are featuring three Burnley football club related books that would make great gifts for the clarets in your life. In our first episode, we heard from Michael Hodkinson, author of the brilliantly titled Known and Ever book on the East Lanks Derby. And in our second episode, we heard from club legend Barry Kilbay, who has published his memoirs starting from scratch. In this episode, we're hearing from sports author and Clarets fan Tim Quelch, whose new book, Northern Exposure, is a 50-year-old diary of watching Burnley FC rise, fall and rise again. We have a copy of Northern Exposure to give away, so do stay tuned to our social channels for your chance to win. Producer Matt sat down with Tim this week and asked him about his latest book and how it all came about. So we are delighted to welcome to the No Name Never podcast author, uh, Tim Quelch. Tim, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Thank you. Fine. Thank you. Very good. Now, Tim is uh, an established author. You've written books about uh, different sports. You've written books about Burnley before this. Um, mm-hmm. And th- those those previous Burnley books have focused on maybe a specific season or a, a specific period. Uh, so mm-hmm. what... What prompted you to take a, a wider look uh, at Burnley's history, and in particular this this fifty year period that the book covers? Well, part of it was to do with the fact that um, I spent fifty years of my life supporting Burnley in some way. There have been times where it's been fairly uh, dormant because I've lived so far away. Um, but um, I wanted to leave the wife and daughter with something of the um, the experience that they had, you know, going to football together over the, over this 50-year um, period. I also wanted to sort of to bring the start of that process, where I started watching them in, in March 1970. And what I wanted to do in this was to um, draw some parallels with 
um, the two main actors at the, the start of my um, football watching with Burnley, um, with it at its end, when under Sean Dyche. Um, so I, I did look at some sort of comparisons between Jimmy Adamson, who was the manager when I first watched them, um, with um, the manager right at the, at the close of the 50-year period, which is Sean Dyche. I mean, both were highly respected as the tacticians and both suffered from early flack from their fans. There was a chance for Jim um, Adamson to be sacked in his second year and uh, Dyche went through a pretty rough spell too. Uh, in, in his first season, uh, they, they hit a very barren patch and um, there were a lot of calls for his head to remember during that period. But both, both of them led their sides back to the top flight. Jimmy Addison fell out and team fell out of the um, first division in 1971. And he led them back there in 1973. Whereas um, Dyche um, took um, Burnley back to the, the first division um, within two years. Um, but there were some differences too that I, I thought I should uh, clarify. Dyche's period in charge was over twice the length that um, Adamson was manager. And um, when Dyche took um, Burnley back to the, the Premier League in his second promotion, he managed to keep them there for six seasons. Um, whereas with, with Adamson, he only kept them there for under a th a three three years. The other striking difference was that Adamson believed in youth. He thought that he could run a successful side um, with young young men that were many of whom were under twenty. Um, whereas Dyche favoured experienced players. Dwight McNeil was probably one of his few um, attempts to sort of experiment with 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 younger players but both of them had to fight above their weight in order to stay in the top flight and um, what was being very clear during this period this 50-year period it's been harder and harder to retain um, a position of uh, in the top of, of English football both managers struggled with a lack of resources. When I started watching Burnley, uh, I, was, I was then with my, my girlfriend, latterly became a wife, and um, we were fanatical once we'd got through our training um, because the, none of uh, we, we both were training in different places. There was very little money. It was very, it was, it was very difficult to get to any games because the uh, uh, if it was so, the money was so tight, um, but after we start, we've completed our respective trainings, me as a social worker and her as a teacher. At that time, um, 
we went to just about every game for three three years. Um, that's three years spent in the it's the first division. Um, we did see them occasionally um, outside that period, but that was a period where we this bug really um, gripped. Um, and the daughter came to football at a time of a family tragedy. The close relative was dying of cancer, and uh, she found it very distressing and asked me to take her to a football match, having shown no interest whatsoever beforehand. And that started off another sort of 10 year period where we went to the football together, all of, going all over the country until she got old enough that boys and uh, other um, activities took sort of uh, first place. Um, so I wanted her to have something to leave them that um, my health isn't great and um, um, I wanted to have, that's why I wanted to do this last book um, so that there was something left for them about the days that we shared together. The, the book does contain lots of details about the matches that you attended back in the 1970s and the 1980s. Did you keep detailed records of these travels and the moments that you're able to then call on when, when writing this book and, and add so much detail to it? Yeah, I mean, I did keep um, sort of copious records. And I used to write to people a lot in those days when you know, uh, sending letters to one another was... There's so much more uh, the thing to do. Um, and, uh, you know, used to send, um, you know, sort of, sort of summaries of the games that I watched and so on. So there's some of that. But it's also been buttressed by the fact that so many other people have put stuff to writing. You know, in the London Clarets, there's, there's any number of people that write uh, copiously about the team, you know, and in various games and so on. So it's been very useful to be able to conflate some of that, um, especially now that my memory isn't as sharp as it used to be. Up until about 15 years ago, I could remember every game I saw and I could remember just about every goal scorer. But the, the, I also got a lot of information from the local papers. The local papers were very good. I used to go into Burnley Library when I was doing the um, Never Had It So Good book um, spent ages in there with the microfish you know, and going through. And uh, as Tony Scholes has, has, has said, that uh, it's um, the trouble is that it's so easy to get to, uh, distracted because there's so many sort of bizarre stories in there that, uh, um, you know, that it's, you know, grab your attention. I'd also um, I've picked up a lot of information from YouTube and um, ITV Hub, who's done a whole um, rerun of um, the big match from the 70s. Um, but on YouTube, you can go back to see games um, in the early days of Match of the Day. Um, which then there was only one game shown. So um, I, you get a 
15 minutes of the action, you know, which gives you a much better feel of how, what the game was about. You know, I, I find the, um, you know, match of the day now sort of a bit, I, I mean, I will watch it from time to time, but it, it's too short, you know, it's just, you don't get a sense of how the game's panned out, just see a few goals and near misses. I've also got a good friend who has been collecting of bits of uh, newsreel um, for years. And he's kindly sort of lent these to me. And I've, I've made good use of that. So it's been a lot easier to get a sense of not only just how the game was played, but also the occasion about the sort of the, uh, the involvement of the crowd, the weather. I mean, some of the pitches back in the 60s and the 70s were absolute disgrace, you know, that, uh, that there was the, the mud literally came up to the sort of the, um, you know, to come over their boots. You know, it was uh, it's amazing that they could produce such good football in such awful conditions. Um, but I love all that because it's is so atmospheric, and uh, hearing the you know the music too that was playing at the time, you know, the ground before the game started and so on. That's great. Yeah, I know. Um, our part of our team, uh, Dave Roberts, uh, a statistician, Burnley statistician. He he's mm. currently spending a lot of time in the libraries, kind of documenting all all the kind of the newspaper footage to add to his database as well. And you know he's working his way slowly backwards through the years. Um, so I think he's finding that quite interesting, you know, compiling those reports to add to the numbers that he has as well. It's a real labour of love. Mm, it is. So um, for this book, you uh, you spoke to some uh, players and staff, for both past yes. and present. Um, which which of those were you able to uh, to talk to when compiling this uh, this record, and how did their their memories of their time at the club compare? There were some differences, um, as you might expect. I mean, for instance, on the um, I um, I met with both Barry Kilby and Clive Holt on separate occasions, and um, Clive was adamant that Burnley would have survived in. 1987, had they failed to beat Orion. Uh, Barry Kilby was very sceptical about that. Clive was uh, felt that he would be able to uh, be able to sort of mount the, the sufficient um, financial resources to keep the club going. But I think there is a, there's a lot of doubt about that because it was at a time, wasn't it, when Colm Dynamos were were flourishing and people were being drawn there rather than to turf more. I mean, some of the gates were in that uh, 86, 87 season were pitiful, weren't they? About 1500, like that. And I mean, in such a big stadium, it must have been absolutely awful. When I was talking with Barry Kilby about it, he, he was, he was as doubtful as I was about the fact that how the team could, how the club could cope in the um the conference as it i think it was called then given the fact that all the overheads that were required the heating the light the lighting uh, hot water and all the rest of it with 
probably a dwindling even further. The, 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 uh, the, the number of fans dwindling even more. He didn't feel that it was it was viable to keep turf more as Burnley's ground, or whatever, um, if they, even if they did manage to survive um, because of all those um, add-ons um, alongside the debts that they were all, they already carried. So I suppose that's one example of where there was there been um, differences. Um, the when I was talking with Martin Dobson and Jeff Nolte, I spoke with Jeff Nolte over the phone, uh, but I, I saw uh, Martin Dobson face to face. Well, both of them were were uh, very reverential towards Jimmy Adamson and could see no... Um, they, he thought that he, he was all good for the club, you know, that he, he uh, introduced a standard of play that they hadn't attained previously, even though that they'd had success in the 59-60 season. And... Um, but talking to Steve Kindon, he was equally adamant that um, Adamson had no man management skills. And uh, he cited an um, example where he was told that by Adamson to buy a house that summer when Adamson, when um, Kindon asked him whether he should buy or rent he said he'd definitely buy and within a few days he was um, shifted off to to wolves and he's never forgotten that he you know every time adamson's names was mentioned he vilifies him and so he felt that he was badly let down by him um and but it wasn't just that he just he found him arrogant and um he um, so he was very moody, apparently, um, and he compares him very unfavourably with Harry Potts, who he had a lot of time for. He's, he he recognised he wasn't the best tactician in the world, um, but he he cared for his players. And uh, if there was one instant where Kingdom was thrown out by his landlady, and Harry Potts come and picked him up, took him home, um, kicked his, <laughs> the kids out of, of their beds and let him sleep there tonight till something else could be settled. And um, just as that um, uh, bad experience of Adam, Adamson um, stays the course, the, it's the same with, uh, with Harry Potts, who uh, I understand was very... Um, um, supportive to Ralph Coates when he was going through a period of bereavement. So when he came, when Kindon came back to Burnley, um, Harry Potts was the manager then. If, if well, for, for a couple of seasons, it was like a, 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 um, a golden period for him and for, for ourselves, I think, too. Picture the scene. All of your mates around, you've got your McNugget share boxes ready to go. Partner this with your team playing champagne football. Perfect. Order McDelivery now on the McDonald's app. There's nothing quite like a McDelivery. At participating restaurants, 18 plus, serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. 
The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly teaming up with Free for Mental Health Awareness Week this year. As football fans, we often pride ourselves on knowing everything, from which substitution can turn the game around to the quickest route home to beat the crowds. However, when it comes to discussing feelings with our friends, we might not always feel as confident. That's why we're here to equip you with the right tools so you can reach out to those who can help. If your mates are struggling, let them know that the Samaritans are free to call on 116123. That's 116123. They are there to listen without judgment or pressure, 24-7, 365 days of the year. Let's all take a moment to talk more than football. Out of the 50 years, are there any particular seasons that are... Uh that stand out in your mind that what some of your favourite periods of watching Burnley? The first season that um, I really enjoyed was the 73, 74 season. It was the first season up. They'd won the, uh, um, the charity shield um, in pre-season. And they, they were up against Leeds who were, it was the championship winning season, and they. Um, but as much as Leeds set a hot pace, Burnley kept up with them until roughly about Christmas time, and after that, it fell away somewhat. Um, but what I remember most about that season, which makes it a special one for me, was the five-one trouncing of Leeds at Elland Road, and. Uh, that, that um, it was just so unexpected, really, because they um, they hadn't been beaten at home in the league. They'd been beaten at home by Bristol City, I think it was, in the cup. Um, but they, um, they, they, it was a fortress there, and to smash them so, you know, um, completely was it was just incredible to watch. It might have been different had uh, because Leeds did have a um, prolonged period in the first half when they were well on top. Um, but uh, as soon as they equalised, then Fletcher scored that brilliant uh, bicycle kick goal. And um, yeah, it was it was nice to see too that the the guy that they they that Leeds uh, players had uh, identified as a bottler, um, Dougie. Collins had such a fantastic game. I mean, he scored one goal and he created two others. And uh, he, as much as anybody, um, contributed to that performance. The sad thing about it, of course, was that Casper um, suffered that awful injury from the tackle, thigh high tackle from Norman Hunter. And um, his career was finished, though he came back and played odd games um, within a year, so he had to give it up. And uh, he was such an important player for the club. Uh, it was a big miss. And, of course, the, the, the following week, they lost uh, a semi-final against uh, Newcastle. Um, so it, was a, it, it had its ups and downs, but it was... Uh, it, it was a terrific season, and the the the, uh, um, the win over Liverpool at Christmas uh, was a remarkable game too. It was played in awful conditions, torrential rain, mud oozing everywhere, 
but it's uh, it, it, yeah, it was a, um, a great game. So that, that game particularly sticks in them, or that season sticks in them. The, the season that followed, well, we started with quite a, sort of a bit of despondency, really, because Martin Dobson was sold to Everton. It, it thought it was going to be a really hard season, and for, and, but for most of it, they they sailed along until they met Wimbledon, of course, in the EFA Cup, which was a huge embarrassment. I mean, the number of early players there, they, they wouldn't go out after that game um, because they felt so shamed. Um, but there are several others, too, that stick in the mind. The, the recovery from when they, they went down... Um, yeah, in, in 90, uh, 1977, they were bot rock bottom, uh, well adrift of the next club. And Steve Kinden came back and he, he almost single-handedly turned things around. Um, he had so much power. I mean, he was the, uh, he scored a, a brilliant goal on the first game that I saw at Turf Moor. And uh, I mean the, the speed and power, and he was he was strong too. He had huge upper body strength. The players tended to bounce off him, you know, because he was once he was he was in his stride. He was very very difficult to stop. Um, and that was a cracking season because they uh, from, from being relegation certainties, as it seemed, to being almost um, uh, within striking distance of the playoff positions. Uh, if, if it was playoffs, then I can't remember. Um, but they were they were pretty near the top by the end of the season. And then there was, um, you know, after the depression of the, the, the fall into the third division, that's a new low for the club. I went to see a game... It was, it was one of the very few games that I saw at Bristol. We would lived there for five years. We didn't have very much money. We had stacking lodges and so on to sort to keep our heads above water. And uh, there was this, this game against um, between Burnley and, and um, Bristol City. I mean, Bristol City were in an awful situation. They were hugely in debt. And um, but Burnley had recovered some momentum. But going into this game, they, um, Bristol City got in front in the early part of the second half. But then this lad, who, who I can't remember how old he was then, Trevor Stephen, he was 17, 18, something like that. And he just run this game. He was phenomenal. I thought, you know, just on that first sight, I thought, this lad's going to play for England. And it was no surprise to me when, I mean, it happened while he was at Everton. But, I mean, it's, nothing troubled him. He played with his, his uh, socks around his ankles. Um, he, but he played with, if, if, you know, on this mire, uh, another rap pitch. He'd, he'd, he played as if he was on a bowling green. And it was absolutely funny. He tore them apart. He was constantly looking for the killer pass and more often than not made it. And uh, 
Burnley came back from a 2-1 down to win 3-2. They should have won it by a lot more, actually, because it, it was a um, it was like shooting fish in a barrel uh, at the end. They were just all over them. So that's strict, that stays very fondly in my mind. In your book, you, uh, you reference social events that were happening alongside each period of Burnley's history. How much do you think these wider events affected the game of football and, and Burnley in particular? I think that it has impinged upon football considerably. Um, what's been happening outside, whether you're talking about the Falklands War or the three-day week and the, uh, um, the floodlight ban, um, now about uh, Ukraine. It's, it's, not, it's not possible to separate sport from all this stuff that's going around. And um, just as music has a um, has a hold for me, I, I associate it with a particular game or um, or uh, occasion. Um, so it, it is with these important events. I mean, I felt like in the Falklands War. I mean, it was it was treated by some as a bit, a bit like a, a World Cup qualifier. You know, there was the, the here we go. Um, pub jingoists who, you know, sort of chanting, um, you know, well, and, 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 the, and it was all stoked up by the tabloids, the sun in particular. You know, stick it up your junter and one or two other ones I won't mention. Um, but um, I, I think it's, it's a mistake to see sport in some way separated from from life. Uh, and life embraces, it, it includes politics and what have you. So that's why I put it in, because, well, for me anyway, it's maybe not everybody's re reaction, but it's mine. And um, that's why I put it in. It, yeah, it certainly, well, as I was reading through a lot of the book, it certainly added a, a kind of a flavour and, and a context, and it just helped you to conjure up a, a, a wider a wider picture uh, of the of the period that you were you know reading about as you work your way through the book under Daesh, Burnley were regularly labelled overachievers. Is this a label you would apply to other parts of their history? I think ever yeah. since the, the 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 glory days, they've been overachievers. There've been times when honestly they they haven't been so good, but I mean generally speaking, that in my opinion applies. I may not go along with Alan Pace about his idea that he wants the Burnley to be everybody's favourite underdog. But the fact is that they've had to fight for their right to sort of to stay in in the football league, let alone the the uh, um you know the higher echelons. So that's why I I think that it, that is a it's not an insult in my book. I mean I I think it's a um a compliment, quite frankly, because they have had to fight their way to get back into top-tier football um, with limited resources. I mean, there have been times when there's been a bit more money going around, but generally speaking, it's been short. And uh, the fact that they've managed to achieve what they've done is absolutely phenomenal. That's why I always, always regard Sean Dyche as their best in my lifetime, the best Burnley manager. How he well, managed that, to do that. I know it wasn't good at the end, 
but that's uh, that's certainly some uh, some plaudit for him to have, given the number of managers that you'll have uh, you'll have witnessed over over the fifty years. This summer saw a massive change to the first team set up at the club and follows on just 18 months after the ALK takeover, which has seen much change away from the pitch. What have you made of all this change and, and what are your hopes of Burnley's future under this leadership, both at boardroom and pitch level? I think like um, a number of other supporters, I think they're have a, you know, a bit anxious about whether this is going to work. I mean, it's... It does seem to be counterintuitive to be doing a leverage takeover in Burnley. You know, it's something that uh, sits a bit more easily, well, at least in my limited view, with, you know, the sort of big clubs like Manchester United and so on. Um, but I suppose that, you know, and even though there's been things going on recently, hasn't there, which has sort of caused some anxiety about uh, companies' house and what have you. Um, but uh, from what I've seen this season, I mean, it, you know, I'm going to curse them, curse them now, but I didn't expect to see such wonderful football being played. And, um, and now, successfully, wonderful football. And I think, well, all these, these players have been brought in. I mean, I know several of them are loans, but they've been brought in for probably less than it costs to buy um, Maxwell Corney. And I'm thinking, well, because I remember some, something that Alan Pace said way back, um, that, that their aim was to find talented players, bring them on and sell them for a profit, which was basically what we did in the 60s and early 70s, the sort of the sell-to-survive policy. And I think, well, perhaps there is something in this, you know, that if, I mean, a lot depends on having the right manager. And uh, I think like a lot of people that, um, you know, I'm a little bit concerned about this talk about whether he would go, uh, he would leave the club for for Belgium. I think he's he's done a phenomenal job in in picking up these players that were clearly under the radar. Because I mean, although a number of them were were um, the clubs allegedly had some interest in, it wasn't one that they pursued with any vigor, and. Yet they're playing for us, you know, and playing brilliantly. And so I'd like to feel more optimistic about it now, you know, but I'm still worried about the debt that exists because after all, we yeah. were a club in profit before they took over. So Tim's book, Northern Exposure, is now available. It's been published by Pitch Publishing and is widely available wherever you find your books. And I would urge you, all to go out and get a copy of it. And depending on your vintage or how long you've been watching the Clarets, certain parts of it, if not all of it, will uh, will take you on a good trip down memory lane. Tim, thank you for talking to us on the podcast this it's week. A pleasure. And, uh, and we'll keep everything crossed that the season continues as successfully as, it's, as the first half has taken yes. us. Thank you very much, Matt. The Known and Ever podcast is brought to you in association with the Talk Sport Fan Network. 
Natalie Bromley is the host and editor, and the show is produced by Matt Moss. Our resident statistician is Dave Roberts, and our FPL expert is Adam Dennett. The analysis show team is collectively Tom Whitaker, Richard Steele, George Poole, Charlotte Rigby, Adam Dennett, and Robbie Kopak. Our music is provided by George Gaskill, and our newsletter team is headed up by James Smith. If you don't already, you can subscribe to our newsletter by visiting nonadnever.substack.com. Our thanks as ever go to our partners, TalkSport. We are, as ever, proud to be part of the TalkSport fan network. The TalkSport fan network is proudly teaming up with three for Mental Health Awareness Week this year. Beyond the pitch, beyond the results, we're here to connect fans, getting them to embrace the highs and lows of supporting your club because we're not just fans, we're a team. With two in three football fans having struggled with their mental health, we understand that life off the pitch can present its own challenges. That's why we're committed to ensuring you have the tools to stay connected with your friends and fellow supporters. Take a moment to connect with your mates. A simple text or an open conversation can make a world of difference. And if they don't respond right away, don't hesitate to follow up. Let's all take a moment to talk more than football. Away days are great, but there's nothing quite like playing at home. The same goes for McDonald's. Maximise your home ground advantage with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app. At participating restaurants, 18 plus serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.